You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Thanks for downloading a special edition of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Nathan Gilmore, and this is one of our Theology Beer Camp episodes. As some of you listeners know, back in late January, I was at an event put on by Homebrewed Christianity, sponsored by National Geographic, where a lot of podcasters, some theologians, some different people got together to drink beer in their case. I have a contract that says that I can't, so I didn't. And talk about theology. That's basically what the upshot was. So I met Todd Littleton actually the night before the event started. He and I were both there as podcasters, and we ended up sharing a room uh, at the bed and breakfast where we were staying and discovered that we had some similar concerns about practices that the church can engage in and that the Christian college can engage in that are sort of practices of resistance to the strong individualism, the strong disregard for truth that we see as characterizing our moment. The next day we met Eric Hall, who is a Roman Catholic theologian, teaches theology and philosophy in Helena, Montana. He's also interested in the same sorts of things, so he jumped in. Then we met Tier Hardy and Jason Michelli of the Crackers and Grape Juice podcast, one of my favorite shows here recently, uh, and they were interested, so they jumped in. So at this point, we've got three podcasts and a theologian all ready to jam. We show up Saturday morning to record this thing, and lo and behold, Luke Norsworthy from the Newsworthy with Norsworthy podcast was there to join us. So this turned out to be a, a gigantic uh, jam session with four podcasts, a theologian, a whole bunch of microphones. I had never done anything like this before. Hopefully you'll get something out of it, and hopefully you will write to us and let us know what we think of it, what you think of it. Uh, so without further ado, this is from Theology Beer Camp, the Crackers and Grape Juice, Newsworthy with Norsworthy, Pathological Christian Humanist Podcast crossover on Practices for Christian Discipleship in Week 1 of the Trump Era. Hey listeners, this is Nathan Gilmore from the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm joined by Jason Michelli and Tier Hardy of Crackers and Grape Juice, by Luke Norsworthy of Newsworthy with Norsworthy, and Todd Lit- Did I say that right? It's hard to say. Yeah, okay, you're laughing I like I said that wrong. Say, I think it sounded <laughs> great. <laughs> and Todd Littleton of the Pathological Podcast. Um, let's take just a couple minutes before we dig into our subject matter today, say a little bit about our shows, since most of our listeners don't listen to all four. Uh, the Christian Humanist is dedicated to philosophy, theology, literature, art, other th- things human beings do well. Uh, we record during the school year primarily since we're all three professors and we're all busy doing other stuff during the summer. Uh, but we've been going since about 2009 and I've been called one of the oldest podcasts more than once at this <laughs> conference, which makes me feel very old. Uh, but I'm joined here by Tier Hardy from Crackers and Grape Juice. Tier, talk to us. Yeah, so Crackers and Grape Juice uh, is a collaboration of four United Methodist ministers, um, three pastors, and one director of a ministry. Um, <laughs> and, and the goal is talking about faith without using stained glass language and making theology accessible and uh, also entertaining, because theology doesn't have to suck and be boring. So that's kind of the goal. Um, I don't know if we've gotten there yet, but we're slowly working that direction. Uh, my name is Luke Norsworthy, and the podcast Newsworthy with Norsworthy is mostly just an excuse for my awesome jokes and my narcissism to be online. <laughs> That's it. Uh, that, one's, that one's pretty hard to follow. Um, 
Pathological is uh, just an opportunity to uh, try to encourage pastors to think theologically. So we interview uh, friends, uh, authors, uh, those who I think might help us uh, do some practical public theology. And we're also joined today by Eric Hall, who is not yet a podcaster, although he's been tempted this weekend to be as cool as the rest of us. Uh, so Eric, when, when tells... I think of cool, I think podcasting. That, that's always the first thing I think about. You know, what's funny is one of my friends said, if uh, like if you're ever on a flight and you know a girl's too friendly to you, just start talking about your podcast. And, uh, <laughs> it'll uh, it'll save your marriage. So yeah, there you go, Eric. I appreciate that. I, I'm gonna since I am constantly hit on on the flights that I take. I'm gonna, <laughs> just gonna pretend that I have a podcast from this point on. You're welcome. Yeah. So Eric, Eric, what do you do? So I'm a philosophy and theology professor in Helena, Montana, and I am here to sell you my book nonstop. That's what I'm gonna be doing. <laughs> All right, Over Christianity good. Guide to God: Everything You Ever Needed to Know About the Almighty, and I mean everything. <laughs> All right. Well, we're recording today. Uh, this is Saturday, January 21st, 2017. And if you look at your calendar and you look at uh, what your Twitter feed was doing, you'll know that this is uh, day two of the Donald Trump presidency. Now, since we're gathered here as a, a collection of ministers and professors and people who are interested in formation, uh, this is something that, you know, Todd and I talked about and Eric's been jumping in and we just kind of gathered, you know, some of our favorite podcasters to dig into this. And I'm interested in hearing, I mean, in the context where you work, um, the Trump moment, of course, doesn't begin with Donald Trump. It's not going to end with Donald Trump. I mean, this is something for which the world has invented the word post-truth that Adam Clark talked about yesterday. This is a world of uh, instant publication via social media, text message, all that kind of groovy thing. Um Jason, yeah, you're looking at me, so I'm going to start with you. I mean, you are in, you know, a DC church, uh, an established denomination. I mean, what kinds of practices of resistance or practices of hospitality or what kinds of practices do you think the church in your context would do well to inculcate as we march forth in this moment that we find ourselves in? Um. Yeah, so I serve a church with a lot of people who work for both political parties, work on the Hill, work in the White House. Um, and one of the things I've been mindful of is for a lot of those people, the church really is a sanctuary from all of that. Um, that being so involved in work that they do believe in, they're also aware of the cynicism um, and the ways in which it doesn't measure up to the kingdom. Um, and so what they seek out you know, by coming and participating in church is an alternative. Um, and so part of what I think we could do is to not get so anxious about Donald Trump, because um, I, I think that belies uh, a faith in the kingdom of America that we don't have in the kingdom of God. Hashtag Howard Wass. <laughs> um, yeah, and so... I, he calls I, him Stan. So I, <laughs> Stan would be proud of it, yeah. Um, My friend Stan. I, I heard you call him Big Stan, actually. <laughs> so, so part of me thinks, I, I really do think, like, the most... This is going to sound like Howard Wass again, too, but, like, the, the most faithful thing Christians can do in light of Donald Trump is to do the exact same thing they did last Sunday and do it again okay. next Sunday. Which is complain about the... Coffee in church. Don't you proclaim the word and <laughs> oh, celebrate that. the okay. Eucharist. Like, yeah, you know, sacraments and stuff. To, okay. to continue to form people around the table and the word. I think that that's what we can do. Todd, I want to kick it over to you. I mean, one of the words that, especially at a place like the Theology Beer Camp, you know, it's a homebrew Christianity event. So, I mean, one of the words that we are 
fascinated with, and sometimes we can't agree what it means is prophetic. So, I mean, I agree with what Jason just said. I mean, the church as sanctuary from the fray, to what extent does that, or not to what extent, that's a bad question. In what ways does that relate to the call to speak prophetically to a moment that is, you know, post-truth or whatever else you want to call this moment? Yeah, Um, it's interesting because actually uh, at a podcast we did, I did with Jason and Tyr, I think we actually talked about the prophetic and that sometimes in the throes of this particular sort of experience that we force the prophetic. In other words, we pretend to be or we use the prophetic as an excuse for maybe um, what we would um, as, as cover for our own particular kind of sense or agenda. Um, so I, I think that um, in in keeping, uh, and Stan isn't my, my friend, um, I know him, I've read him, but uh, he's not my friend. Uh, but I, I think the thing that goes along with uh, that is, is, is that um, if the church as a community has a prophetic role, it will be to continue to do the things that it does, not just on Sunday. I, I think that mm-hmm. if we're talking about a formation of a community, and a community in which a church is vested in, it's going to be necessary to continue to uh, 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 avoid the distractions that would keep us from doing the things that actually represent what that kingdom might look like were it to really fully come. And, and the, like the prophetic mantle is never gladly accepted in Scripture, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what's different than, from what I hear. It's too many pastors when they say they want to be prophetic, like they're excited about dispensing their view. Um, and, that, and that's not like how Jeremiah feels <laughs> like, right. Right. You know, accusing God of assaulting him and ruining his life. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's, if it's going to be prophetic, it has to be something that's thrust upon you against your will. Right. Or, or more mildly, you know, Isaiah saying, I'm not the guy to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, if I, if I speak this, I will die. Yeah, I mean it's it's great to go march in Washington, but if you're excited about doing it and choosing to do it, it's probably not prophetic. Mm-hmm. You know, like maybe God will use it to that end somehow. But don't you think though that in this moment, in a sense, if the church is cognizant of really what's going on, it has been thrust into that role. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I would agree with that. Well, Eric, I want to I want to turn to the college context. Because, I mean, when you and I uh, found out, you know, I I actually went to bed on election night. Uh, My wife said, you know, Trump just won Pennsylvania. I said, no, he didn't. And then I fell asleep. And then I woke (laughs) up in the morning and found out he actually did. Um, There might be an interview about your marriage. (laughs) 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 Yeah. I'm not even going to go there. But, Eric, you and I, I mean... We had final exams to write the day after Trump That's was right. elected. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, what does it mean to keep doing what you do at a, in, a, in a Catholic college setting? Dismissal is one of his love lives. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I, you know, the, in some ways, this is a tough question for me because I, I just don't worry about this. That, and I should. I should worry more than I do because there are real things at stake, right? But mm-hmm. I, well, I, Let's assume the world did not change yeah. radically on November 8th, that stuff was already happening yeah. and stuff continues to happen. What kind of formation happens in a Catholic college setting that helps students to be faithful in this sure, moment, sure. whatever we call it. Uh, I'll, I'll go. I'll go back again that we don't have to abide by sola scriptura, right? So mm-hmm. I make them read more Socrates, is what I do, um, and I did have them read more Socrates. Um, 
We read The Gorgias, which is a great book on the nature of oratory and political life, and it's a critique of it through and through, namely that for the most part politicians need to speak for the sake of uh, gathering an audience, right? And that uh, the philosopher needs to speak not to gather an audience, but to ascend to the truth. And so that's what I just kept trying to push to my students. Doesn't matter who's elected. Doesn't matter what this is. You got to live the philosophical life and uh, continue to ascend to the truth, despite who's in political power, because they're tyrants either way. <laughs> And as a Catholic, Donald Trump's not really your president anyway, right? No, no, but but that's true of either of the two candidates that we had. I mean, there there was an interesting in, in Catholic circles. There's so you'll find Catholics aren't one block voters for the most part, and we have our liberal wings and we have our conservative wings. But there were a lot of people in the middle who, for the most part, will vote Democrat. Um, who decided not to this time around, not specifically because of Hillary Clinton that I know of, but specifically because of certain stances on, say, abortion that came to be embraced mm -hmm. rather than safe, legal, and rare, uh, it became sort of this identity point, celebration mm -hmm. point. And yeah, so... Yeah, I mean, uh, American women should get abortions. Yeah. We heard the DNC. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was the equivalent of... The the Republicans saying drill ba drill baby drill uh, in the previous, mm. uh, but I mean that that's off topic. But it, it's a it's a tough. Uh, it, I, I guess what you do at a Catholic institution is you keep teaching Socrates and you keep teaching uh, how to seek truth. And I know my colleagues will disagree with me on this because a lot of them were very deeply deeply disappointed, understandably, in the results. But mm. that's how I approach it. So Luke Newsworthy. Yep. You pastor in the belly of the beast. What do oh, you, it's I mean, Austin. What do you say? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's kind of, you know, blue inside of, inside of red. And, mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, the week uh, the week of the election, I went to lunch with a guy who works in the Capitol, or at the Capitol, and he's known Pence for years. And, uh, you know, he's a guy on the right. And um, there's people in my church who are really distraught by it. Uh, there are people who are really... Uh, apathetic um, people who voted uh, Republican, uh, they wouldn't say they voted Trump. They they voted Republican because they thought it was uh, the best option for them. And yeah, say a little bit more of that. That's an important distinction. Well, uh, there were people who voted right. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, here's the thing. Like, I'm, I'm being a smart act right now, but the honest answer is there are some people who thought that you had two bad options. Yeah, and yeah, for. Um, <laughs> You know, people who are excited about Hillary as a person, some were excited about the idea of <coughs> removing the glass ceiling and working towards gender equality. Uh, and some people said, I voted against Trump. And some people said, you know, Hillary, she's not that great. And you look at Trump and we go, well, his marital stuff should discount him. And they look at the Clinton family for right or wrong. And they go, well, it's not like their marriage is perfect. Mm -hmm. And you go, well, you know, you know, Trump's terrible because he's, you know, the personification of greed. And you go, well, you know, they're friends and it's not like Hillary isn't running the same circles as, as Trump is. Mm -hmm. And you go, you know what? I, for, for better, for worse, some go, you, you've got two bad candidates and I'm going to take, like you just brought up abortion. Like that's an issue. That they go, okay, if I vote for Trump, then I'm voting for uh, a conservative ethic with uh, maintaining anti-abortion laws. And, or at the very <laughs> least benign apathy towards it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. As sure. opposed to, yeah, sure. And, I think the the biggest lesson of this election was how little this country knew each other. Yeah. And you have people on the left, oh, I can't believe this happened. 
what? You don't know enough people. Yeah. And you had people on the right go, I can't, I don't understand why people don't like Donald Trump. And the thing is, you don't know enough people either. Uh, I have people who literally think Trump is a good man and he's going to do a good job. I have people who think Trump is the Antichrist. And you go, guys, you, you need to know each other. And mm-hmm. this is the um, Anabaptist move. Like that's part of my Churches of Christ tradition is we go, you know, ultimately our savior is not a political party, right or left. Yeah. And um, but there's a formation he just, <clears throat> he just drew out. You need to know each other. So if we're talking about yeah. formative practices in the aftermath of the of the uh, Trump event, then it would be to inculcate occasions where we help people know each other. I mean, yeah. we force those force maybe create opportunities where people can learn yeah. each other's story. Exactly. Yeah, and it does show how like church is different than any other community in the wider community. Like, because I, I I mean, all of our churches are more. Or as, as diverse as Luke's church has been described, I think. Um, and maybe church is the only place where people who vote for Trump and for Hillary actually do do yeah, gather yeah. on a regular basis. And they can take the sacraments. That's yeah. what unites them. Exactly right. you know, the but I think it's re-educating people on how to talk to one another <laughs> instead of just at one another, having mm-hmm. conversations yeah. where... And then having those conversations and then and going and gathering at the table. Yeah. The, the, Doing it, doing those things yeah. together. Not that those conversations are an act of worship, but I think it helps us to remember our bonds in Christ. Yeah, I think this is actually. I mean, this is why I brought up Socrates earlier. I think this is where philosophical reflection becomes, in some ways, uh, more useful than theological reflection on these points. And I say that because I say that because theologically speaking, we have this propensity to read our own views into the kingdom of God and the eschaton. Yep. Um, and philosophy and what Socrates does is he says, hold on, take a good look at yourself and remember that you are constantly saying that you're more right than anyone else. And now submit yourself to another in dialectics to hear where you're wrong. Um, and that's what philosophy in its best move constantly does. And the philosophy classroom can become a very benign place to allow students to get over their sort of myopic views of what they think that should be and enter into discussion to a, if you will, a self-sacrificial. Now I am talking theologically about uh, philosophy. I I almost, a Catholic almost (laughs) quoted the Bible. I was once Pentecostal, (laughs) so I might start speaking in tongues too in a minute. Um, Which is the worst one do you want? I don't know. <laughs> but I, I think there's a self-sacrificial acquiescence to the truth uh, that you can learn through philosophical self-reflection, and that—that's why I want all theologians, frankly, to practice some philosophy. Mm-hmm. So when the spirit comes to you, do you do you speak Aquinas <laughs> anymore? I just start I just start quoting Socrates. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Tierra, I want to follow up on what you said a moment ago, uh, you know, this learning to talk with each other in different ways. I mean, concretely in a United Methodist congregation, uh, and there's my Stone Campbell roots coming out. I can't call it a church. It's a congregation. Thank you. Um, you still got a chance to get into heaven. What does that, what, <laughs> what does that look like? I mean, at that congregational level, do you think? I mean, if, if it doesn't happen already, imagine how it could happen. I, th- I think learning to talk to one another, we have to begin by just doing simple things together, whether that's sharing a meal, whether, you know, um, yeah. actually talking to each other in church, I, like just going back to the bare basics of living in community, because we've forgotten that in our 140 character world now. Yeah. Uh, I work primarily with teenagers and that's, that's their 
that's how they view the world is mm-hmm. through, through their phone. Yeah. Um, like that's and when you take their phone away from them for whatever reason, like they panic because that's their world. And that's, and it's, it's a legitimate concern for them because that's the way we, um, have kind of framed society for them. And that is, that is, I think slowly being absorbed, that mentality is being absorbed by their parents and by their grandparents to where we don't know how to communicate. Yep. Um, I mean, Jason and I are really good friends. I think I could probably count on one hand the number of times we've like had a conversation on the phone. Like we'll text back and forth all day. We'll talk face to face, or you know, on the computer. But like we won't actually have a conversation. Um, and we're pretty good friends. I feel judged. I've been judging you, though. Bad friend. Yeah, yeah. Leave it to the Catholic to judge you. <laughs> <laughs> so Louis C.K. has got the bit about how young kids are jerks because their communication is digital. Mm-hmm. And you, yeah. you, as a kid, everyone's a jerk until you see the expression on someone's face when you say, hey, you're ugly, you're stupid. And yeah. then you see him go, oh, I'm terribly upset right now. And then you learn, hey, don't do that. Like, don't be what? a <laughs> Sure. But when you text someone, <clears throat> you don't see that. Like as good of a GIF or emoji as you get, it doesn't really articulate <laughs> how really crestfallen you are. And so you don't have that sort of real back and forth. I I don't know if you guys follow James K.A. Smith mm-hmm. on oh, yeah. Twitter. He posted something about how like the left are like um, some like they're Marcionites now because they're getting rid of, <laughs> and it just annoyed me. I really didn't like it, and I like James K. A. Smith. I've talked to him one time, and I I, I I like the guy, but I was like, I really don't like that you said that, and it really annoyed me because I really think that's a just it, divisive. It, yeah, yeah, it's it's divisive or yeah. divisive, either one. Um, <laughs> I, I don't talk Texan, man. No, I'm just saying it really bothered me because I'm like. I'm on the other side of you right now, and all of a sudden, I've become the other, and I want to now create a narrative that says, well, you're really dumb, or your face is stupid, yeah. like something like that, just to push away from him. And that's what 140 does. Who is it uh, Ivan from the bro- Brothers Karamazov who makes that famous quote that he loves humanity and hates individuals? Yeah, that's Ivan Karamazov. Yeah, I think uh-huh. so. Um, yeah, I always felt the opposite yeah, of that. Yeah, Louis C.K. said. Yes, yes, yes. I'm just, I'm Ma- ministers, I mean, professors. The way. <laughs> no, but but uh, on this one, like, he's I've always... He's justifying his student debt right now. That's, that's what he's saying. <laughs> I, I got scholarships, man. It was fine. I'm just... <laughs> Now it just turned into a. D- <laughs> uh, but it's because you saw you the turned? expression on his face. <laughs> revealed, I think, is the word. Revealed what I am. Okay, what were you saying though about your fancy my literature? my fancy pants literature? Uh, <laughs> then they're What novels. I was saying, Yvonne has this uh, this great statement where he says that he loves humanity and hates individuals. Right. Isn't that how he puts it? Or is it the like other that? way? No, no, or, that's or, how or, I've or, always felt. Yeah, that's how I always say it. Because I, okay, you, so I flip it. Yeah, I flip well, it Coach too. Coach Taylor on Friday Night Lights once said. Because <laughs> <laughs> once you break bread with someone, once you sit down and you actually have a meal with them, and there is something about a meal, if it's mm-hmm. something, uh, if it's not too spicy anyways, uh, that allows you... <laughs> that allows you to take another person seriously. Maybe it's just watching someone uh, chew the cud, as we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier. Well, there is. I mean, I, I think there really is something just <laughs> existentially about that, about being in the presence of someone as they engage in, you know, the replenishment of a body that can't replenish itself. Yeah. yeah, yeah uh, and, I, and I don't think by any means it's a conscious process where anyone thinks that, except for me, because I... <laughs> also teach philosophy, but, you know, I think that, uh, you know, yeah. on a level that's uh, running underneath the conscious and the willful, 
there is a sense that, you know, sharing that meal uh, really does connect you with someone on a level that a an exchange of claims and propositions and arguments and such doesn't really do. Yeah. And, there, and there's something tribal about social media. I mean, you're, you're, you're finding a tribe. And, and, and so I think there's a sense in which our politics is, you know, so like, like the gay friends I have, like they're all more complex people than just being gay. Right. And so like, you know, all the liberal people I know and all the conservative people I know, like they're more than that. Yeah, and there's something absolutely. about social media that just routes us into these little tribes and we badge ourselves with, with these labels. Um, but, but is that those, the, those formed tribes, aren't those like artificial, artificially created though? Because it's like, you're not seeking out other people who love Stanley, right? But it comes through your newsfeed because you clicked something and there's an algorithm yeah. that is placing us into these tribes. It's not that we're seeking this out. It's, um, I don't want to say it's like us unknowingly being forced into these. Well, and part of it's positive too. I yeah, mean, we don't like, fight it either. I mean, that's like, true. Yeah, like <laughs> social media allows you to find a community that you might not have found otherwise, um, and like that could be a good thing. But it can also, I can see, you know, well, I mean, in like in the case of like Trump, like that sense of community, I think creates permission for things to be said out loud that previously people wouldn't have said out loud. Yeah. Um, kind of real, you know, sort of xenophobic kind of statements and things yeah. like that. Um, th- that sense of security within your social media sphere um, can do damage too. Mm. Go back to Louis C.K. <laughs> so he's got this thing where he's no. <laughs> I, I do think that you have to name what social media is. It's not like this um, benign thing that doesn't have negative mm-hmm. aspects to it. I, I think it really. It does create these sort of echo chambers because that's what you're engaging with. You're not engaging with the humanity of someone. You're engaging with their artificial character, which is really what we all are online. Right. It's a caricature. It's a cartoon character. Yeah, exactly. And I think if you just listen to that, if you let that be the dominant form of communication in your life, then we're all screwed. If you understand, hey, this is a game. It's it's fun to play with, but you, sure. you understand that this is a secondary part of... You know, our interactions. But I think part of that is um, election day, because we've been in these echo chambers, election day is the most honest we've been in communities with one another in a mm-hmm. really, really long time. Because on social media, I only, you know, we only post the good stuff. We don't throw yeah, yeah, yeah. our dirty little secrets out there. But all of that came out um, when at you know, 11 o'clock I fell asleep. Hillary's going to win. I wake up at 2 to go to bed and holy hell well come on Luke why aren't you judging him for this right because well, <laughs> he didn't like First Timothy to his wife you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's why wow. uh, so for you Eric First Timothy is a letter in the Bible um, it's found can, in can the New Testament can you start with the Bible I believe. it's a Bible <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's part of me that thinks like all oh, this is much to do about nothing that like Hillary Clinton was like a profoundly flawed candidate that anyone could have seen um, from a mile away that like, you know, Bernie Sanders competitiveness was a huge signal about how compromised she was as a candidate. Sure. And for us to rethink the American landscape and culture and all of that, um, you know, is to create too much anxiety over this more fundamental practical problem that her campaign had. 
mm-hmm. um, that anyone else running for yep. the, with that party's mantle would have done a much better job and probably would have won. If, if we think about another uh, formative practice, um, we were um, talking this morning about your your interview yesterday, where I know is you know trying to pick um, should we be afraid of Trump or or not, and and you made a comment that I've I've long thought that we don't take long enough time in terms of introspection to go, what does my response to that figure say about me? Mm-hmm. Because we spend most of our time trying to figure out what it says about the figure. Mm-hmm. And I think if we're going to talk about formative practices, if we don't spend some time really with a mirror to say, what what does that say about me, my reaction to, then the sorts of things that I need to confess or the sorts of things that I need to say are in the way of me being a better kind of human being in the way of Jesus then actually gets thwarted, and I just continue to foster a particular formation that is um, self-indulgent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, is there a, uh, a particular practice that anybody could suggest? I mean, if someone's going to be listening and... What, what sort of regular practice would that entail? Confession? Yeah, that seems... That's I was, I was, I was I mean. softballing Eric there. <laughs> no, you, yeah, no, you give a philosopher practices? Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to stay quiet for once, for Pete's sake. <laughs> but, yeah. but what if it was confessing, um, if, to, if we're going to stay like on the kind of a political track, confessing to someone with a, an opposing political view from you? So finding the, the other... So the opposite of you, and starting there, because mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. I think when we when you begin to become vulnerable with your enemy or your opponent or whatever language we want to use, mm-hmm. um, it you're going to let your you'll eventually hopefully if it goes well you'll let your guard down they'll let their guard down and then you can realize that you know we, yeah. we have a shared humanity here yeah true. that's it. Um, and not just a shared humanity. I think, like in terms of confession, I, I think you know, from like the Book of Common Prayer, it's you know, we're all miserable offenders, you know, and and that's the ground upon which I think we're all equal. And church is a inclusive place, um, like the mutual recognition of guilt um, and sinfulness um, and right. narcissism. And honestly, I think that's one of the places where social media builds a kind of armor for us because. Uh, I don't know about your experiences in mine. If I even give a nod towards approving of someone that the of something that the enemy says, uh, all of a sudden it's well. Don't you know how awful this person is? How in the world could you say that? You know, uh, this person has a good point, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that you know not only confession, but you know, uh, and I, I tried to talk about this yesterday, but I didn't do a great job at it. So I'm going to take you know attempt number two out of here. <laughs> but something more like a dialogical confession, I think is a practice that has some promise. So, I mean, not only confessing my sins, but doing so in the presence of another human being mm-hmm. so that, that human being can catch me lying when I'm trying to confess my sins. Mm-hmm. Because if I try to focus on what I do wrong, I'm going to pick the stuff that really ain't that bad, and I'm going to ignore the stuff that's real bad. But someone else who's watching me live is going to say, yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's fine that you know you eat too much Taco Bell, but you know really you're an arrogant SOB too. And you really need to focus on that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you guys are actually focusing on a really important category for Aristotle, right? The friend. Uh, mm-hmm. And the friend for Aristotle is 
I got more for you, Luke. Uh, <laughs> the, the friend for Aristotle is, he says it's another self. And the, the role of the true friend is to be able to see into who the other self is and to say the crap that the person has become. Mm-hmm. Now, to defend my uh, bring up a, yet another philosopher, I want you to know something. I play a game at the beginning of every semester called Liar, Bullshit, or Philosopher. <laughs> and I put up two politicians as the liars. I usually put up John Stewart and Bill O'Reilly as the bullshitters. And then I pick Louis C.K. and uh, oh, uh, Michael Che as my philosophers. So I have a deep respect for Louis C.K. <laughs> he's, a, he's a modern-day philosopher. <laughs> he is. And he if that's all you know, that's fine. I mean, if you want to learn more i'm happy to teach you i appreciate that that. (laughs) yeah that's that's really what i hope to do yeah yeah learn philosophy learn from the guy who ran away from being evangelical to go to catholic uh, (laughs) nothing says success in texas ministry like that (laughs) that's what i think of so that's really neat so Tell me again, how many people do you talk to every week? Uh, <laughs> yeah, not that many. How many Catholics are there anymore? I don't know. Um, a lot. I, in Montana, of all places. Yeah. Actually, there, it's funny enough. What, there is, are is Montana just people who live in like extreme right cults and then also Catholics? Is that? <laughs> I is think that you just Mon- described <laughs> Texas. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. It's evangelicals. Evangelicals. So, uh, honestly, the, Montana is an old Democratic Union state in many ways. We tend to vote uh, Republican federally and then we vote a lot of times democrat locally and a lot of that has been the old irish population old irish catholic Mm. population that came over to mine um so the whole like labor socialist movement started in like the dakotas right yeah was that part of montana Mm -hmm. also like um i mean that wouldn't surprise me i don't know that for sure but yeah i mean there are a ton of old union towns uh honestly until i started reading chuck klosterman i didn't really know anyone actually ever lived in Dakota, Montana. And I honestly don't know yeah. the difference. I feel like they're basically all the same. It, it is one congressional district. <laughs> like, is it really? I mean, we have one We have one person in the House of Representatives, right? I, so mm-hmm. it's, uh, we, get, we get two senators, though. Yeah. Like everyone. Okay, let's, look, I'll try to reel this back in. I do think community is ultimately the answer for this. And mm-hmm. one of the most yeah. formative practices for me was not from Aristotle or the Book of Common Prayer, but literally... <laughs> Just uh, developing a friendship with someone who's um, a buddy of mine who does uh, concrete construction. He's never read a book uh, as an adult. Um, He, out of high school, just started doing construction. The family business has done it for 20 years. We work out together, and he, you know, his family are like the preppers. They have like this massive bunker with food and like so much ammunition. It's mind blowing. (laughs) They're big, like NRA people, and we're really good friends. I mean, we're completely opposite. He could fix and build anything, and I can read books. Like, that's we, we are completely different people, but. I've been able to see where he's coming from and to understand his experience. And you, I can't demonize someone who's a big NRA guy when I know him. It's not like NRA guy. It's my buddy who also has the same name as me, named Luke. Uh, it, I, I think there's something formational about that. I've got a buddy uh, in, in Memphis who told me that there is a very outspoken racist that <clears throat> he knows who he asked him, have you ever had a meal with uh, a black person? And they said – no. And you go, well, of course, that's how you ended up where you are, because you literally have never had your feet underneath the table with someone uh, who's African-American. So, of course, you're going to have that, those attitudes towards the other. And I think it, it's not a fancy spiritual practice. It's just basic humanity of seeing this person has something that I can learn from. And then you don't demonize them. Yeah. 
And I think one of the mentalities we've got to get away from is something that I've been guilty of. So I mean, I'm pointing the finger at myself here, but the mentality that to spend time with someone with political views or memberships or affiliations that are unappetizing makes you guilty by association. We've got to open up the frightening and potentially dangerous possibility that we can spend time with a racist and not ourselves, you know, get the cooties from them. Sure. You know, did you point um, at me as the racist? <laughs> I, I, no, I pointed at the racist over there. Todd's from Oklahoma. So. I, I, I pointed at the empty chair, <laughs> listeners. I pointed at the empty, yep, the empty chair. chair. That's Elijah. Elijah's a racist. <laughs> That's Bible character. Sorry. Uh, sorry, that's not a friend. I mean, he probably was. Again, yeah. can you just explain the Bible first? That's what I yeah. keep asking. But, Elijah was not very open and affirming of idolaters. So I, I can see. Yeah, you'd be an uncomfortable person to spend time with. Yeah, exactly. Hey, at least he's not walking around naked, right? Like, yeah. which prophet was that? Isaiah. Yeah, yeah. He's hold up that twenty four, I think. Twenty three. That sounds about right. <laughs> there you go. Good for you. I just made that up. Good for you. I only know the gospels. That's all I got. <laughs> but the, the, we don't create community with people who have different uh, boxes they live in than us, unless there's something bigger than the box. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my example is me and this guy had a shared interest in in, in fitness and exercise. And so we like to work out. And so that created a bond that bridged over um, the differences of ideological and educational backgrounds. If church can't be the bridge that is the bigger thing that pulls us all together, then what is it supposed to, like, what is it doing if it can't create that sort of unity? If all of our churches vote the same way, then we failed something miserably. Mm-hmm. I, actually th- I mean, I think you're pointing out another thing, even beyond church, uh, it's funny the way the sports world can <laughs> pull people together, honestly, because yeah. I, I always laughed at uh, the call for diversity on some of the campuses I was on, um, and then I never saw any of the professors with me, say, rolling jujitsu, where you are, by definition, rolling with someone. Exactly. Uh, so we had, uh, what, we were 50%. I, I used to live in Upland or near Upland around here. So it was uh, about a 50% Latino population uh, and 50% white. And, yeah, we'd roll together. I don't know what that does. It just makes it so that you can't have some sort of pure judgment of the other, right? Yep. Does anyone else not know what rolling jujitsu means? If you're we, a jujitsu player, that's what you say uh, you're practicing. Yeah. Like if you Sorry. Roll. Okay. Yeah. That's where you're choking people, or uh-huh. in my case, getting choked. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but after the uh, the weekend, there was the two shootings. I'm sorry, I cut you off. Uh, but the at our church, we had one of my friends and I do kind of like a, a meditation leading up into the table. And uh, this guy was a former athlete, and now he does like um, he's the morning host for the ESPN Austin affiliate. And um, you know, he said that that's the power of the huddle is that you get people together yeah. um, and it doesn't matter if you're rich, poor, black or white. Uh, when you have that sort of common bond that a team in sport does, mm-hmm. uh, it, it bridges over better than uh, unfortunately what church sometimes can do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, podcasters, listeners, friends, uh, Trip Fuller has told us in no uncertain terms that if we're late for the John Cobb talk, there would be uh, serious consequences. Uh, so I want to thank Todd Littleton, Luke Norsworthy, Jason Michelli, Eric Hall, Tier Hardy. What? Did I say it wrong again? <laughs> no, you're, you're in my head now. You really are. <laughs> <laughs> Who won? Who do you think won? Why don't you rank us? That's the way to go out. <laughs> uh, 
I'm not. I, <laughs> I think, should we put all we'll, of our mics together like Captain Planet? And I mean, well, Todd, <laughs> he and Todd have been spooning all week. So Todd's going to obviously yeah, be this number is true. one. I, I, I was in bed I with Todd six hours track. after I met him. So I, 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 I Todd's going to edit that out for the members. Yeah. Of the <laughs> yeah. well, the I actually probably leave that one in. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure why I'm signing off for everyone. But in behalf of Crackers and Grape Juice, Newsworthy with Norsworthy, and the Pathological Podcast. This is Nathan Gilmore from the Christian Humanist saying, thank you for listening. This is Theology Beer Camp. Keep listening. So listeners, you heard, uh, first of all, how much Luke Norsworthy abused me verbally. I hope you took note of that. But also you see that there are a lot of shows out there, Crackers and Grape Juice, Pathological, Newsworthy with Norsworthy, there Luke, I said something nice, who are really kind of interested in this idea of practice conversation and prayer and confession and things like that that are really going to help us to do something beyond simple social media rants in this moment. I hope you check out their their shows. I also hope that you check out uh, the Brew Theology podcast. This is a new one uh, operating out of Denver, Colorado. This is sort of an interfaith dialogue group. Pretty fun to talk to. Um, I might possibly be doing a, a guest spot on one of their shows here before too long. But I want to thank once more, before we sign off here, Homebrew Christianity for putting on this event, and then, of course, National Geographic for sponsoring it. This is Nathan Gilmore. Thanks for listening.